I want you to, I want you to think about this. My, my whole purpose, now we're in, this, we're in this process of, for the last several months, last six months, if you will, of, of studying the subject of what? What's the subject matter we're studying? The Holy Spirit. And we started off talking about who is the Holy Spirit or what is the Holy Spirit, and then transition to what does the Holy Spirit do? What, what, what can we expect? What's, what's God's purpose for the Holy Spirit? And we've reached a place where we're addressing the subject of uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But in order to understand, because there are differing views as to what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. We covered that, right? So we said, well, how do we know which view is the most accurate view? What what are we to believe about this subject, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So I suggested, well, if we're going to really understand it, then we, we probably need to go back and make sure we understand what baptism is. And I, my, my goal was to, to, to have us expand our understanding of baptism. What is baptism? Is it just being dunked? Is that it? Is it, is it some perfunctory act that we go through as Christians? Or do we really understand what it is and appreciate it and the statement that is meant through our water baptism. And so we're going to do a little bit of review, bit of review this morning, and then we're going to begin that transition from baptism to begin to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that in more detail next week, and then we're going to get to the subject of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Is there a difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit? What is that all about? Because these are subjects that are in the contemporary church, they are subjects of some confusion and controversy. And I suspect, tragically, uh, that there are lots of people who hold views that are not exactly biblical views. And those views are perpetuated. So this is why we're taking so much time looking through this. If you're confused, hallelujah. Get the CD. We, we have a podcast, they tell me. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I was told that we podcast. So you can go on, our, go on your computer and get our podcast. <laughs> I'm still a number two pencil and a legal pad guy, okay? The point is, you want to, you want to think through this subject, because it is such a critical subject. Now, as I said this morning, we're going to, we're going to uh, begin to make this transition from baptism to begin to look more intensely and closely at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to suggest to you this morning that baptism, our baptism, your water baptism, speaks of, this phrase is, is important, a one-stage initiation. It's a one-stage initiation. How many times do we get baptized? Once. And our baptism is an initiation. It's an initiation into the church, physically but spiritually. And we're going to rehearse again this morning uh, all of the components, all those dynamics that baptism speaks to or is inclusive of. Sometimes we, we see these things all separated and different and it, they come in different stages. I'm going to suggest to you it's all one stage. And that has implications for this subject called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, hopefully I haven't confused you too much already this morning. I just, I just want to be redundant. I mean, know that I love being redundant. All right, now look, we said last time that baptism is the expression of some things in an outward ceremony. It's, a, it's an outward practice. It's an outward rite. It's an outward ceremony. But that outward ceremony is an expression of a, of a number of things. First of all, it's an expression of our new birth. Does that make sense? It's an expression of the theological reality of justification. This is what God has done for us. He has justified us, and we... We confess that through our water baptism. 
When you get baptized, it's, it's not just, okay, I'm going to go through the ceremony. It's much more than that. And when we begin to grasp these, these great spiritual dynamics, you are just, just so blessed by what God has done. It's an expression of becoming a child of God. And all these things happen simultaneously. This is what I'm talking about. It's it's a one-stage initiation. I become a child of God. I'm justified. I'm born again. All of this happens at the same time. They're all the same, and yet they're different. Baptism is, again, it's the mark of the new life. It's a, it's, a, it's a mark. And that new life involves, there's some other crucial elements too. It involves repentance. It involves faith. And remember, repentance and faith, those also are a gift of God to us, aren't they? We don't just all of a sudden, all, all on our own, repent. It, God convicts us, and then he grants us repentance. And then he grants us the faith. That's how helpless and hopeless we are in our sinful state. We're dead. It takes God in his great mercy and grace to do all these great works. And we proclaim these things when we're baptized. Man, if you understand all this, you can hardly wait to get baptized. And yet there are far too many Christians who are, who are yet unbaptized or they treat their baptism as some kind of, well, it's a perfunctory experience I, I go through, you know, everybody gets baptized. It's no big deal. This new life involves also receiving the Holy Spirit. When you're born again, you're born again of the Spirit, by the Spirit, with the Spirit. This is what the Bible tells us. This is a matter of faith. And it's only the Holy Spirit that can actually make us into new people. Isn't that true? I love it all the time. You say, you, say, you know, people, people, you talk about issues in their life, and they say, well, I'm working on that. <laughs> you ever say that? I'm working on it. No, that's God's work. <laughs> God's working on it. Your part is to believe. Your part is to walk in faith with him. Your part is to trust him. So Paul tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God's at work in you. So you can uh, will and do that which is his good pleasure. So in a very real sense, baptism brings us into contact with the saving work of Jesus Christ in all of its manifest facets, if you will. And all these dynamics I've described to you are the, are the facets of what Christ has done, his saving work. He's justified us. He's given us his spirit. He's made us new creations. He's granted us the repentance and the faith. He's done it all in our baptism as a testimony to all of that. Somebody say hallelujah. Is that not exciting? Doesn't it make you want to get baptized? <laughs> I mean, you know, you just hardly wait. You go, wow, wow, I see now, I understand. The Apostle Paul himself links baptism with justification. We, we looked at, at Romans chapter 5 and 6 last time. We looked at Colossians. Uh, we looked at uh, Corinthians. And in, 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 in a number of these passages, we see where Paul has linked this theme of justification with baptism. They are, in effect, the outside and the inside of the very same thing. We have, a, we have another way of saying that. We, we, we describe baptism as the outward expression of an inward reality, right? They're, they're, they're so inextricably linked. You can't separate them. Because baptism speaks of that. And our justification points to being baptized. And they're, they're so, so linked together... And, and they're linked together in these very, very significant ways. Uh, baptism, we said last time, baptism, number one, is like justification. It's something that's done for us. You no more baptize yourself than you justify yourself. They're so alike. 
and so linked. Number two, baptism, like justification, is a once-for-all event. How many times do you, does God justify us? How many times? One, one time. Justified. How many times does Christ have to die on the cross for me? One time. And baptism is a testimony. It's a one-time event. But it's packed with meaning. And baptism, like justification, speaks of, what was the third dynamic? Do you remember from last time? Incorporation into Christ. When I go down under the water, and it pictures me dying, Paul says, and being buried with Christ. And when I come up out of the water, risen to new life, I'm incorporated into Christ. I am made one with him. And justification speaks of that, just like baptism. Baptism is what makes a person a Christian. In all of its multiple forms, all of the, all the aspects of it, baptism is the summary word, summary statement of what makes a Christian a Christian. This is my testimony. I'm justified. I'm born again. I'm a new creation. I'm in Christ. Baptism brings us into contact and makes us a Christian. It is the unrepeatable sacrament of Christian beginnings. Just as communion is the sacrament of going on with Christ in his church. People have asked, well, you know, is communion important? Communion is absolutely important. Get baptized once, you come to the communion table again and again and again. How can we only have communion once a month as a congregation? Communion is always available. It's always available on both sides of the auditorium. Those the communion elements are there. You can come up when you are going to take, bring your offering. Come up during worship. Feel free. Just come up and take communion as a testimony of your ongoing walk with Christ. All the work that he had done and demonstrated through your water baptism, uh, testified to you through water baptism, all that work goes on through your testimony of coming to the Lord's table and taking communion, among other things. Now, it's important to, 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 to make this point. I, I want to make this, this, this clear. And I think you'll agree. Baptism, is, we don't, it's not just an, an external rite. It's not just something in and of itself, a bare rite. I mean, the Bible is full of, of, of attacks uh, on, on the merely external, on the merely outward, isn't it? And, and yet always we're so tempted just to, just to trust in the external. We, I want to look good. And so we, 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 we trust in the external. David in Psalm 51 says this. And notice where the emphasis is. Notice, notice where he focuses He says, make me look good, God, on the outside. Is that what he says? No. He says, create in me a what? A pure heart. And he says, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The focus is on what's on the inside, the internal. And that obviously ought to work its way on on the outside. We don't worry about the outside. We're more concerned on the inside. God, do a work in me, then that work in me will manifest on the outside. So baptism is is not just a mere external rite or practice. It's something that speaks to internal realities. Paul writes the same same theme. He discusses the same theme in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He says, a man is not a Jew, or you can say parenthetically a Christian, if he is only one outwardly. Would we agree to that? Lots of people who profess to be Christians who aren't Christians. They think they are outwardly. And when you talk to them and listen to them and observe them, you say clearly, that person is not a believer. They can't possibly be. Now, I know we can't always judge everyone's heart, and we don't exactly know uh, where they are with the Lord, but the reality is, uh, Jesus says, you'll know them by their what? By the fruit. You know. 
You know when you're hanging out with someone who loves Jesus, and you know when you're hanging around with someone who says they love Jesus, but they don't. It's not rocket science. He says, nor is circumcision, or parenthetically, baptism, merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew, or a Christian, if you will, if he is one, what? Inwardly. And the result of of a circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. We saw that in in Colossians chapter 2 last time. So you get the idea. It's an inward thing. Uh, Ezekiel, God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel, and he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in in you. So again, it's a continual emphasis on that which is internal, not the external. And typically, human beings tend to focus on the external and uh, ignore the internal, the greater realities. So baptism includes sonship. It includes entry into the kingdom of God. It includes incorporation into Christ. It includes reception of the Holy Spirit. It includes justification. Baptism is such a rich, rich testimony, a rich dynamic, a rich statement. Would you agree? So I want us to to appreciate baptism. I want us to expand our view and our understanding of baptism. Because unless we have that kind of a view, we're not going to really appreciate and understand and value the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Another analogy we can use is this. If you look at uh, a Christian in the Christian life, it's really a weaving together of three strands, if you will. The the first strand we could define as the human side of the human strand. And that involves repentance and faith. I must repent, true? And I must exhibit faith. And again, a reminder, those are both gifts of God. They're not something I generate. I have innate to myself. That's the human side. There's the divine side, the divine strand. This would include the reception or the giving of the Holy Spirit. This would include the adoption into the family of God. This would include the forgiveness of our sins. And it would include, again, justification. And then there's the churchly side. The churchly side would would be marked by baptism into the body of believers. Now, I want to suggest to you, all three belong together, and all three are necessary for initiation. Now, you can argue, and you can question, you can say, well, which is the most necessary? Or which is the least necessary? You're asking the wrong questions. You're asking the wrong questions. I believe that the three belong together. The human side, the divine side, and the churchly side, if you will. I believe that they belong together in the plan of God just as surely as loving companionship, sexual relationship, and children belong together in God's plan for marriage. Would you say that's, an, that's a picture of God's plan for marriage? Loving companionship? A sexual relationship? Kids? Yeah, if you have a loving relationship and you've got a sexual thing, man, kids are going to be on the way, aren't they? <laughs> Pretty much. You have to work real hard to stop them. <laughs> that's God's design. That's the way he designed things. That's how he means for them. To, he, said, he said to the first pair, what? Be fruitful, increase in number. So these, these dynamics are essential. They're all important. You think, well, you know, I, I, I know faith and repentance. Okay, I know that's, that's absolutely important. And I know that God's side is important. I'm not so sure about being baptized. No, they're all critical according to God's design. I want to submit that to you for your consideration. So that being true, again, I want to suggest that baptism is a one-stage initiation It's a one-stage initiation. All of those events, all those dynamics are included in this one stage. It's not multiple stages. 
Baptisms once for all. Are you with me? Am I making sense? To some of you, good. My wife, okay. (laughs) Now, if that's true, if baptism is a one-stage initiation, what are we to make of those passages in the New Testament, more particularly in the book of Acts, that seem to speak, seem to speak of a two-stage initiation? That's what we're going to look at this week and next week. There are initially two such passages. In the 8th chapter of Acts, don't turn there, just stay with Acts chapter 2. The 8th chapter of Acts, we see the Samaritan believers. We see that Luke records, apparently, that they do not receive the Holy Spirit immediately. Some of you are very familiar with that passage. And then in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, we we meet a a, a handful of disciples, uh, the Ephesian dozen, if you will, the indef- there's no definite article to describe them as the disciples or implicitly speaking of them as disciples of Jesus. They're, the, they're, they're just called some disciples. So they're, they're nondescript in that sense. There's no, no definition. And these disciples, we're told, have been called followers of who? John the Baptist. And uh, uh, they were apparently unaware of the existence of the Holy Spirit but subsequently received the Holy Spirit and spoke with tongues and prophesied. We're going to look at that passage shortly. There's a third passage, and this is Paul's conversion. Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. This is a remarkable, uh, remarkable event where there seems to be a three-day gap between his surrender to Christ on the road to Damascus and his baptism and filling with the Holy Spirit. Most of you are familiar with that. In Acts chapter 9. Now we're going to look at that passage shortly, but before we do, I, I, I want to suggest to you something that is very not, it's not often considered. And as we look at these passages, I think it's, it's, it's worth noting this kind of general point. Luke wrote not only his gospel, but Luke also is the author of the book of Acts. Luke is primarily a historian. He's primarily a historian. He doesn't seem to be interested in providing us with a theology of Christian initiation in his accounts in the book of Acts. To underscore that, I want want us to look at three quick passages. And his intention is not to build a theology of Christian initiation. His intention is simply to tell us the the sweep of events. By that, I specifically want to address Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Now, Peter has just preached his first sermon. His hearers in Jerusalem, it's it's Pentecost. The hearers of Peter's first sermon, many, many, thousands of them, literally, uh, Luke records, are, they're, they're cut to the quick, they're, they're convicted in their heart, and they say, Peter, what must we do to be saved? And he tells them in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What I want to suggest to you is that in Luke's accounts, sometimes he has the reception of the Holy Spirit following baptism. He says, be baptized first, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know it it doesn't seem like a very big point, but if you go back now over to Acts chapter 10, you see just the opposite happening. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44, he, he, he seems to have it that... Uh, the reception of the Holy Spirit precedes their baptism. In Acts chapter 2, when did it come? After. Acts chapter 10, you'll see it precedes it. All right? Let's just look real quickly. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking, now this, remember this is Cornelius' house. We're not going to read the whole text. You can read it and get the background yourself. Cornelius is a Gentile, he and his family. And uh, God sends Peter there. Uh, while Peter was still speaking, he's, he's preaching the gospel to him. While he was still speaking, uh, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter 
uh, from Jerusalem were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. This was unheard of. Now remember, Peter and, and the circumcised believers who were with him were Jewish. The Holy Spirit was poured on, that, on them on the day of Pentecost. They were to have absolutely nothing to do with Gentiles. And now here, they're seeing the Holy Spirit poured out even on the Gentiles. What would you think? Duh. Giant paradigm shift, huh? I have to rethink my theology. For they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So the the speaking in tongues and the praising of God were evidence to Peter and the circumcised believers that the Holy Spirit had fallen on them, just like they'd experienced back in, in, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Then Peter said, verse 47, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? So here, Luke has the Holy Spirit following on these people, then them being baptized. In the previous case, it was just the opposite. There's a third instance. Sometimes, sometimes a man is baptized who has absolutely no part in this Christian thing and whose heart is still bound in darkness. Turn back to chapter 8. This is the account of a, of a man by the name of Simon. Verse 13. Simon followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability that everyone on everyone whom I lay on hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to back up, actually, the earlier part of verse 13. I skipped that. Simon himself believed and was baptized. So here's a guy who apparently believes. Here's preaching, Philip preaching. He professes belief and gets baptized. Then he sees there's no testimony evidence that he receives the Holy Spirit. And then he sees the Holy Spirit come on people as a result of, of, the, of Philip laying hands on people, the apostles laying hands on people, and he wants to buy this gift. He wants to buy this ability to do this. Now notice what Peter says to him. <clears throat> Peter answered, your money perish, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Uh, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. I see you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Does a person captive to sin describe a Christian? There's no evidence at all that he's a Christian. He's missing the whole boat. He's just focused on what? This, this stuff, this external stuff. So again, Luke records someone can be baptized and not even receive the Holy Spirit, not even be a believer. So you can have the Holy Spirit coming after baptism, before baptism, not even coming and the guy be baptized. Luke is not developing a, a, a coherent theology on baptism or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't even tell us about Apollos, whether Apollos was baptized. Over in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, you remember Aquila and Priscilla, that, that husband-wife team? They, they take uh, Apollos, this learned Jew from Alexandria who knew of God and, and these things, and he had pretty much his theology in place, and they took him in hand and said, we need to fill in some gaps for you here. And in that account where they do that, Luke doesn't even record if Apollos was even baptized. He apparently only knew the, the baptism of John. It seems, it seems, if you will, that, that Paul, in his writings, is more interested in the interior work of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this work of the Holy Spirit, whereas Luke is more interested in the broader picture of, of simply the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. And the, the, the sweep of the work of God in bringing the church into existence and the expansion of the church. And I think that it would be mistaken, we would be mistaken, to try to base uh, a doctrine of theological necessity upon Luke's accounts, which I believe were designed simply to describe the, the great 
sweep and move of God in, in bringing the church into existence. In other words, Luke is not saying this is how it works. That's Paul's job. As I understand, Luke is, Luke is the historian. Everything he writes is true and right. Paul is the theologian. Paul is the one who interprets and understands and explains all the doctrines, forms all the doctrines for all the churches, corrects all the errors. So if you want to know the theology behind something, you go, where should you go? You go to Paul. Paul explained this to me. Now, you can derive things. You can, you, you can uh, get uh, implications of things from the Gospels, obviously, and from Luke's writings and such in the book of Acts. But uh, the, the, the spelled out doctrine comes, I think, from Paul. That's, a, that's an important point, I think. Now, look at Acts chapter 9 with me. This is Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now, we're going to look at three passages. We're going to look at this initial passage, Luke's record of this incident with Paul and Jesus Christ. And then we're going to look at the recitation of this. Uh, Luke records Paul's words before the Jews in Jerusalem after he's arrested. And then we're going to look at the third account, Luke's record of Paul's recitation before Agrippa. Now, I want you to notice the, the, the subject initially has a lot of detail. The second one doesn't have quite as much detail. third one doesn't even have hardly that detail the first two subjects have. What's his point? He's just, he's just concerned that here's, a one, here's a, this one event occurred. He's not, he's not desiring to, to, to draw out uh, this stage, this stage, this stage, this stage in a definitive kind of a way. He's just saying, no, look, Paul got saved. This is what happened. It happened in, in a three-day period of time. That's what Luke's emphasis is. Let's just look. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. Now, that was the, that was the early description of, of Christians. Um, whether men or women, he might uh, take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now, do you think at that that juncture here, do you think that Paul might be undergoing a shift in his thinking. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias... By the way, the word Ananias, the name Ananias means gracious. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. That's interesting. Notice notice comparison with verse 1. He's breathing out murderous what? Now he's praying. (laughs) Don't you love the contrast there? He's praying... In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Lord, I don't want to go see this guy. But the Lord said to Ananias, what? Shut up and go. Do what I told you to do. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name. Uh, before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must, what? Suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So that's the initial account of Paul's salvation. I think that it, is, it would be difficult to find a doctrine of a two-stage initiation on a three-day delay in Paul's conversion. I think as we have seen from Paul's own words, as we've read his epistles and his own description of his own uh, salvation experience, he, sl- he clearly saw uh, a one-stage initiation. For, and for Paul, justification, being born again, it all was the same thing, okay? Luke sees the whole three-day experience of Paul as one event. Look with me at the next passage, and that is Acts chapter 22. Now, in this this account, this is for the Jerusalem Jews, this account, the Ananias incident is recalled, along with Paul's commission and baptism. Verse 1. Now, he's been arrested, and he wants to testify before the Jews. He speaks to them in Aramaic, verse 2. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, meaning Jerusalem. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked him. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now... What you are waiting for, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. So there's a second account of his conversion. Now, notice it's a little bit more compressed. But it's, in, in Luke's mind, I want to suggest to you, it's a one-time event. It's not a multiple-stage uh, conversion event. Now turn to the t- 26th chapter of Acts, and we read the third account of it. And in this account, as we read it, you'll notice there is no mention whatsoever of the three-day wait, no mention of the role of Ananias, or even of baptism. It's not of concern to Luke. He just wants us to see, he wants his readers to see this occurrence that happened between the risen Lord Jesus and Saul of Tarsus. In chapter 26, verse 12. He says, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, it's hard for you to submit. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles I am sending you. I'm sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. One unified picture, one unified view of this event, not multiples of this event. And Paul, even in his own testimony, speaks of his conversion as simply one event. Now, I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 19. This is a passage also that is used to advocate for a two-stage initiation of Christian people. But if you look closely at the details, you see there's really no basis for that uh, understanding or that teaching. Acts chapter 19 is clearly an exceptional instance. We speak of a dozen people, 12 disciples, but they're not the disciples, if you will. Uh, There's just some disciples, as you shall see. Verse 1, while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus. There he found, now the NIV has it, some disciples. It's indefinite. We don't know whose disciples they are. They're just some disciples. They're all gathered together. Followers of somebody. Some disciples. And Paul asked them a question. What question does he ask them? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now, presumably on his initial encounter... He thought maybe they were Christians. But quickly, I suspect, discovered they may not actually be Christians. The reason for the question. This is the reason for the question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They seem to possess none of the marks of the Spirit. So he asked them again, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Or more likely, we can, we can rephrase that, have you believed and received the Holy Spirit? Because when you believe, you what? You receive the Holy Spirit. You're born again. You're born of the Spirit. Now the phrase, when you believed, that's the NIV translation. When you believed is the participle Pistusantes. That's the Greek word. Pistusantes. It's one word in the Greek. Translated in our NIV as when you believed. It's a participle. It's literally translated believing. And that believing is contemporaneous or simultaneous with their receiving. That's why you have when. It's at the same time. When you believe, did you receive? Do you follow me? Very, very important distinction. It's not, the translation is not, as many Bibles would have it, and more particularly King James, it is not, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Which would seem to imply a two-stage initiation. I believed, and then somewhere later, because I believed, somewhere later I received the Holy Spirit. No, the text in the Greek actually makes the two events simultaneous, contemporaneous. Happened at the same time. And it is, I think, unfortunate that many teachings on this passage rely on that simple mistranslation of the Greek for their teaching a two-stage experience as being normative. And most of us, if you've come from charismatic Pentecostal backgrounds, this is what most of us have been taught. It's a two-stage thing. You get saved, and then later on you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they point to this passage, and I I submit to you, a misinterpretation of the actual Greek, a mistranslation to base that, that theology on. When you look at the text, it doesn't say that at all. The passage goes on. And just the context of the passage, the passage goes on to make it, I think, crystal clear that these disciples were in no sense Christians to begin with. They were followers of John the Baptist. Verse 3 says they were baptized by John. And they had made their way 
after being baptized, they had made their way, literally hundreds of miles northwest, to Ephesus from Jerusalem. So here, they're way up in Ephesus now. Paul happens to encounter them. They had clearly not been in touch with John's testimony to Jesus. Because they needed Paul to tell them. As Luke records, they needed Paul to tell them that the coming one whom John preached was who? Jesus. Remember, John says, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. They had neither apparently heard of Jesus, because they don't, they, don't, they don't know about this until Paul tells them. Nor had they believed in Jesus, nor had they been baptized into Jesus' name. And they were apparently ignorant of the Holy Spirit. How could they possibly be Christians? Does that make sense to you? Now, most of our English translations are also likely to mislead us at this point also. This is a little bit technical, so stay with me. According to most of our English translations... These disciples reply to John's question about receiving the Holy Spirit when they believed, if they believed, by this. How did they reply? Verse 2, what does he say? What do they say in response to his question? We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that, that certainly is a possible way to understand the Greek. But it would have been difficult, think with me, it would have been difficult for anyone who listened, however inattentively, to John the Baptist to be in doubt that he was interested in the Holy Spirit. Because his formula was, I baptize with water, but one coming after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, I suspect it's probably a safe bet to think that every time John baptized and preached, he preached that same message because he was the forerunner. He was the one who was always, his was his mission to point to Jesus, right? He didn't just baptize unilaterally in and of his own. He was always pointed to Jesus. So even, even if you're the most inattentive hearer, you would have to hear something or be attuned somehow into John's interest in the Holy Spirit, or even his mention of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you? It is much more likely, I think, that the Greek, in that, in that response to Paul's question to them, that Greek should be translated, we have not even heard if the Holy Spirit is available. Now, that would presume that they heard about the Holy Spirit but they don't even know if the Holy Spirit's available. Now remember, they've gone from Jerusalem to Ephesus. They're not sure that the coming one has come who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. So we're not sure if the Holy Spirit has actually come yet. We don't know if the Holy Spirit is available. I think that's probably a little bit better translation. By the way, if you have a New American Standard Bible, you'll note in the margin that is the alternative translation. That's where I got it from. Not only did John the Baptist speak of the Holy Spirit as the future gift of the coming one, but John the Evangelist says it prior to John the Baptist. John the Evangelist in chapter 7 of John's Gospel says this. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, what is, what is Jesus referring to there? The Holy Spirit. He says, if you believe in me, streams of living water will flow from within you. Which implies what? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. You believe in me, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to pour out of you. Now, notice the next, next comment, verse 30. Uh, 39. He says, by this, he meant the Spirit, whom whom those who believed in him were later to receive 
Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. These followers of John the Baptist at Ephesus did not know if the age of the Spirit had broken in yet. They were so far away. So I suggest to you, rather than this passage describing a two-stage initiation, these guys are not even believers to begin with. They don't become believers until Paul preaches to them. And they hear about the name of Jesus. And they believe in Jesus. Paul lays his hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. It's a one-time event. Are you tracking with me? Amazing. Now, they just, it's important, I think, for us to understand what baptism is all about. It's important for us to understand because we need to understand and clarify this issue of what does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? When does that happen? Rather than being tossed about in, in two or three different views and, and us being uncertain about that. Are we making, am I making sense to you? Now, next time, we're going to talk about, we're going to look at the Samaritan converts. And then we're going to transition into a little bit more detailed look at what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And then the following time, we're going to look at what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you don't want to miss next week and the week after, okay? Shall we pray? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, as we diligently read it and study it. We begin to understand more clearly what your purpose and your will is. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that uh, it is straightforward. It is simple. And, Lord, we are sorry for the way we complicate these things. Father, we just thank you for your abundant grace to us. We give you thanks this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.